Hi, I'm Jennifer Love of the Living Wealthy Institute, and this is The Nature of Money Show. Did 2020 leave you feeling disoriented or disconnected maybe from yourself and others? Dramatic disruptions continue to shake our financial world to its core, revealing vulnerabilities in how we live, relate to, and interact with money. And many of us feel more alone in our relationship with money than ever before. And in this season of The Nature of Money, we'll begin to take a deeper dive into the inner workings that laid the foundation for how several successful female founders developed their personal money narrative. And you'll get a peek into the deeper layers, which ordinarily stay hidden behind the garden gate of our busy lives. And you'll begin to get to know me through various parts of my own story and the perspectives of experts in various fields. Together, we're going to explore those core beliefs about money and worth and where they come from. And what are the limitations caused by our old money narratives? And how do those limitations affect us? I'm a career entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience. I've started and run my own businesses and advise leaders in growing theirs. My mission as a money therapist is to empower leaders to end what I call emotional poverty and to grow their internal net worth right alongside growing their investments and businesses ultimately, to live wealthy. I'm excited to share these stories with you. And so subscribe right now to The Nature of Money wherever you find podcasts to get episodes as soon as they drop. Do you wish you had a North Star guiding the decisions of your life? An internal compass that you could rely on when you're off kilter? The aftermath of 2020 has left so many feelings so tender. Anger, sadness, anxiety are common, and yet so many want to turn and run from the feeling. However, feeling our feelings is not overrated because our feelings are our North Star, showing us, telling us exactly where we are in our own inner experience. And beautiful, as a female leader, there is so much gold in that emotionality of yours, that emotionality that has been formed by the narrative of your life. And so today I'm here with Tim Lewis, a man who spends his days in the tech world and is also an accomplished musician, composer, astrophotographer, and a born polymath who relishes contemplating and communicating about any field of study that catches his fascination. He's a mythologist, an astronomer whose current attention is found in religion and spirituality and consciousness, psychology and human perception. And in this episode, Tim and I discuss finding gold in the emotionality of our stories. Our discussion covers how female roles and archetypes create patterns of relating and examining where those patterns are empowering versus holding women back and how stories and narratives are built over time. We're all in our own universe. We explore women in science and we explore women leading emotionally impoverished lives. We explore finding things in the psyche that don't want to get detected. And we also talk about how to unpack the true emotions and layers of emotion, anger, covering grief and sadness and fear, and how to learn from all of this. We explore expressing our feelings and needs without resentment, or injury. 
We also explore dealing with our inner critic and observing without reacting or judging. And you know, nature gives us the lesson. The death of a star is the basis for life. We have to unpack our story, die to the story we have constructed to move into a new and desired phase of being and relating. What are we making money mean? How are we defining ourselves? What is expressing itself through us? This is complicated to shift because our ego and personality is very much a part of us. Is change possible? And if so, how? So join us in this episode to explore and learn more. Hey everyone, this episode has a special sponsor. Over at Ziva Meditation, you'll find tools to help you transition from worrier to warrior, all in one place. The world may be stressed, but you don't have to be. Inside Ziva Meditation Self-Care Center, you'll find meditations, visualizations, bodywork and movement, and resources for you parents and your kiddos. Emily Fletcher, founder of Ziva Meditation, and I have spent time together, and we share similar values, and I can personally say that this is one talented meditation guide. And so I'm confident that by putting you in the hands of her and her programs, you'll find your way into more peace and calm amidst your busy life. Use http colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash Ziva Meditation. Great, and we're here uh, with Money Narratives and uh, the universal look at emotional uh, gold. So Tim, maybe we just start with um, who are the notable women in science and why? Well, that would cover a lot of ground to try and cover that. Um, hmm. But uh, the three that... Uh, I have been talking about uh, lately uh, are three women that sort of are connected to each other. And I, that's probably the reason why I found myself uh, aligning uh, on those three. Uh, so they are three women uh, who were scientifically uh, uh, really active in the uh, late 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the first one was uh, a woman named Annie Jump Cannon. Now, Annie was from the United States, and she was born in uh, you know, near the uh, latter part of uh, of the nineteenth century. And she, you know, went to school. Uh, she got her bachelor's of science at Wellesley College, uh, but she did uh, end up having uh, uh, scarlet fever, uh, which was. Uh, something that could happen back in those days, and she'd completely lost her hearing. But her uh, her interest took her to Harvard, and she ended up joining something called the Harvard Computers under a gentleman named Harlow Shapley, who was running the uh, the observatory at the time at Harvard. And the Harvard Computers uh, were a group of women, uh, and their their role in this particular case, uh, they were working with uh, the men who uh, also worked at the observatory. They were making catalogs of stars. And so Annie's role in uh, making these catalogs, she was one of the people who was assigned to you know, look at the prints uh, that were coming from the telescopes. Now, these were not photographic prints at this time. These were glass plates 
that were uh, that basically uh, had emulsion on them, so they could uh, develop them and look at them. And so Annie was involved with analyzing, uh, you know, these fields of stars. Uh, this catalog they were making was called the Henry Draper catalog. It was probably not one of the earliest catalogs, but it was uh, our attempt to locate stars. Uh, in this Draper catalog, the, the point of it was to to identify and you know categorize stars down down to ninth magnitude, which is pretty dim. Our eyes can usually see in the city maybe down to fifth magnitude, and uh, the magnitude I think is a logarithmic scale. So they were categorizing and making these catalogs of stars, and uh, Annie was just really fast at it. She had this uh, this kind of skill at ripping through this material, and she could categorize 200 stars an hour or something like that, which is on the order of three per minute. So she could go through this, but her her big contribution was that she invented a categorization system for stars, which is you know more or less unchanged today. Uh, the system that she came up with consisted of about seven main categories and uh, you know subcategories. The point is is that that system uh, helped us identify stars by their luminosity and their temperature and things like that. So that is what uh, Annie's real big contribution was, and it's a big deal because you have being able to agree on what you call a thing is sort of the basis of science. So uh, coming up with a system that everybody could agree this star is this category of star was was really useful. So that was Annie's contribution. And this flows into uh, the next woman that I talk about, which is Cecilia Payne. And Cecilia Payne, uh, she was a little younger than, uh, than Annie, but she was born in the UK. Uh, she went to school at Cambridge, even though she was unable to get a degree there, because at that point, women didn't get degrees at Cambridge or anywhere in the UK, as far as I understand it. But she did study at the Cavendish Laboratory, and she polished her uh, her scientific method skills there and learned how to do science really well. So she learned that the same Harlow Shapley at Harvard was opening a program for women in astronomy at Harvard, and she applied, and she was the second woman accepted there. And what is interesting about this is uh, it, there's this serendipity involved here that all of these plates, all of these star catalogs, and the associated data and plates and you know spectral data was exactly what Cecilia needed to find. Uh, she shows up at Harvard and finds the largest repository of stellar classification data in the world at Harvard. And her research was about stars. So this allowed her to uh, to grab this large, you know, statistical set of data and compare it to her, uh, her uh, work that she was doing at Cambridge. So Harlow Shapley uh, knew of her research and was very encouraging for her to go after her PhD, and she did achieve that in 1925. And her uh, doctoral thesis was on uh, stellar atmospheres. That was the title of the paper. And it's really interesting to think, you know, if we think about what we know about science now, it's it's not so amazing what she was proposing, you know, because we've had 120 years to think our way through these things. But back at the time that Cecilia was at Harvard, uh, our brightest minds were convinced that stars were basically hot planets. 
just warm versions of planets, you know, chemically, elementally similar. And Cecilia shows up and it's, it's hard to uh, overemphasize how audacious this is. This woman in her 20s comes in to Harvard and confidently tells everybody that they're wrong. Most of these are men, tells them they are wrong and that they're way wrong. It turns out that uh, the estimates that uh, the science of the day had for the you know the the component or the the quantity of hydrogen in a star was off by a factor of a million according to Cecilia's research. So uh, you know this paper eventually was recognized as one of the uh, one of the greatest scientific papers ever written, and still it took four years for Cecilia's. Uh, ideas and her hypotheses to become accepted. Uh, you can imagine, just like with any case in human history, that there are always going to be people who are going to sort of be inertially strapped to what they think is true. And that was no different in this case. There were certainly going to be men who could not jump onto this rocket. You know, they were perfectly content to trundle down the road intellectually in the equivalent of a Model T. And what Cecilia was offering was a rocket. But some of the men did jump onto this rocket and it shot us forward in terms of our understanding. Because in addition to what she was showing us, which was effectively that stars were nothing more than balls of hydrogen and helium. And what they did was consume that hydrogen, making helium through nuclear fusion processes. That was a pretty amazing thing because what that really allowed us to do is understand something about what the early universe would have to have been like. And so Cecilia, you know, the, the, uh, the ramifications of this were that we now knew that the early universe had to have a lot of hydrogen and helium. So whether it was direct or indirect, Cecilia's work gave us a roadmap to start laying out what the universe was shaped like and what it what it must have been and what it must not have been early in its formation. And so that helped us understand what the universe was like in the early parts of it and how stars formed, because now we understood that the universe was actually not a complex, but an exceedingly simple environment. You have gravity and an electro um, electromagnetism largely operating on these scales, and you had hydrogen and helium. And when all of those four things came together, you had just an explosion of stars and then eventually galaxies. So that's where Cecilia took us to, redefining what stars were. But the next woman, Margaret Burbage, took on where Cecilia left off. Margaret, also from the UK, uh, she... um, did her, uh, I think she got her degree in, uh, oh, when was I? I think she got it in 1945, got her PhD in 1945. And she came to the United States and she attempted to apply for a Carnegie Fellowship, but she was blocked because uh, to give her a fellowship would have meant that she would have to study at Mount Wilson up near Pasadena. And there was a hard rule at that time that, only women could op- or only men could operate the telescopes uh, up at uh, Mount Wilson, which seems kind of silly and petty now, but uh, it was uh, it, it was a hard rule that was not uh, violated. So she went on with her research anyway, and in 1953 uh, she married uh, 
and uh, so her and her husband and uh, colleagues Fowler and Holt got together and started working on trying to answer the question of now that we know what stars are made of and we know what the early universe was like, well, where did we come from? How are we here? Because that question had not been answered. Uh, we understood where hydrogen and helium came from, but the rest of the periodic table, the elements, it was unclear at the time how it could come in, into being. And so uh, this team, which was later known as the B2FH team, and their paper is known as the B2FH paper, they put forward uh, an idea called stellar nucleosynthesis. And the stellar nucleosynthesis is, if you take the, you know, the, the components of that statement apart, it just means... Uh, you know, synthesis inside the nucleus of stars. And so that is exactly what this team arrived at, was that stars live their lives producing hydrogen, hydrogen and helium, but they can't really produce much more than, you know, things like carbon, maybe up to iron if they're really large stars. And the reason that is, is because the energies required to produce anything bigger are just not available at the cores of the stars where this fusion reaction is going on. So... What the team suggested was stars do, in fact, produce all of these elements, but they don't produce them during their regular lives. They produce them at the moments of their deaths. And so that's exactly where this went, that we saw that stars run along for you know hundreds of millions or billions of years, depending upon their size. And eventually, the star runs out of its fuel, that hydrogen. And that hydrogen and that that process of creating helium from hydrogen is the only thing holding off uh, the crushing force of gravity, trying to squeeze all of that hydrogen and helium into an ever smaller volume. So at the moment that the hydrogen runs out, there's nothing to stop the this gravity's force, and it crushes the star very quickly. And and by very quickly, uh, you know, in milliseconds, it crashes down and. In those few milliseconds, the temperatures get so high in the core of that star that it is now within reason for all of these other elements to come pouring out. That's exactly what they do. The star squeezes down from gravity, then explodes, it rebounds, and showers the space around it with the periodic table of the elements up to around uh, uranium. So that is the contribution that Margaret and her team made, really answered the question, how are we here? in a universe that started with just hydrogen and helium. And so you can see how these three women were sort of linked to each other. Annie's stellar classification uh, system that she came up with and all of the work that she did uh, classifying stars brought Cecilia the data set that she needed to do her work on redefining stars, which then left the door open for Margaret uh, to go forward and fill in the gaps left by Cecilia's work. If you can say that was a gap, I mean, what she did was amazing. And uh, these women obviously went on to do other things, but these were their big contributions. What I'm really enjoying in listening to these women is how they were um, <laughs> so audacious in some ways, um, but also they were stumbling across barriers, blocks in in how they might proceed or succeed in certain kinds of ways, or even be accepted. The idea, their ideas being accepted. And you mentioned, you know, how one of them was even not allowed to go to the observatory and work the, the telescope. And yeah. 
And which you're right, it, it is a ridiculous notion. And we kind of laugh about those things today. And yet that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't. It wasn't. And, uh, and you know, there are things that we definitely wouldn't laugh about today that, w- you know, and in a hundred years, maybe we'll find <laughs> our, 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 our descendants will find equally, uh, you know, silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I wonder, you know, your thoughts around these blocks and that these, ex- that these women must have been experiencing. And I'm curious if you know, you know, have, or have any other insight into any of that. Um, other ways they might have been blocked. But I think what's more interesting to me is how could that have even created some of the narratives going on society, you know, in society for women or how that gets perpetuated um, and carried through as kind of stories that we relate to and how we're, re- how we are. Um, yeah. Moving through being with allowing ourselves to succeed or, or stumble. Or or stay back, right? Or or redefine what our universe is to us and what's possible in it, right? That's right. And that's really what we're talking about: is what will you allow to be a possibility in your life, yes. and what will you exclude? Yes. And you know that these women had exactly the same stuff going on, but probably much worse than we have it uh, today, or women have it today. I mean, um, that you know. They had to knock down barriers that are, you know, effectively not there. I mean, someone like Cecilia, the 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 men at uh, at the time, the scientific giants at the time, uh, they were kind of doing the, you know, they're there. That's very nice that you've come up with a paper, but um, uh, we think that you're making a mistake by publishing this madness. We think you're going to ruin your career. You're so young. You've got so much potential. We think you're going to ruin your career before you get going. And imagine that. Now, what we don't really know, at least I don't know because I haven't read. I know there are books out there on Cecilia Payne. Uh, and she she eventually married, and I think her name was hyphenated to Kapushkin. Um, But there has to have been a degree of headstrong Ness in these women. They couldn't have been shrinking violets because they had to have known they were going into, well, they had to know they were going into a lion's den of sorts. They knew that the, you know, that, I mean, Cecilia was the second woman accepted to the Harvard program uh, for astronomy. So she knew that she was uh, blazing trails. But to the degree that was she doing this to blaze a trail or was she just, uh, uh, sort of un- inconsolably curious. She had to do this. This work had to happen for her. Uh, I did uh, read uh, in another article about her that when she discovered that she could study science, she said, I shall never be lonely again now that I have this. Because mm. it, it was it was the thing. She, I, I think she was a, you know, one of those children who was lonely and misunderstood. And uh, in science, she found... Uh, sort of that consolation that she was looking for so she could just go do that. And so she didn't tell herself, and we don't know, what did her parents say? Did her parents say, yes, honey, go do that? I mean, it may have a lot to do with that too, that they reinforced it and let her go forward in that. You know, you can imagine, you know, parents are parents. I'm a parent of a 17-year-old, and I just want her to understand that you just go do what you want to do. I will do everything in my power to help you have the things that you want, but don't take no for an answer. 
And so maybe that's what happened uh, for people like Cecilia and Margaret and Annie as well, is that they had supportive parents. But they all uh, had, uh, you know, they all had, uh, whether it was they were overt or hidden walls around them, they all had them. But something tells me that they just simply said, I'm just going to go do it. And I'm going to go until I'm stopped. And I think that's maybe a good model. Don't you think? Mm, I do. I like this notion of, um, well, one, there's a reinforcement uh, of something even being possible. Uh, But I like this idea and notion of uh, what you were referring to earlier about the stars and this concept of the stars. um, I I see it almost when you're describing it as like breaking open Um, and that's that's what I've heard uh, and have learned about stars is that there's there's almost this death that happens, um, and I imagine in these women that there was some form of explosion that had to happen outside of the cultural norm, the societal acceptance that they were living under, that they had to somehow explode beyond that in themselves to break through what maybe was supposed to be. Or what was considered acceptable. Right. Yeah. And I mean, just think of, you know, Annie. Annie kind of goes into this having lost one of her senses. And that didn't stop her. I mean, there, there, uh, you could even think of it as uh, that was the death of a part of her. That's right. You know, she was, she was young when it happened, but she had long enough to know what it was like to live with it and to live without it. And clearly, uh, she did not. Um, she did not go uh, pull the covers over her head and say, "I, I, I can't live now." She obviously just dealt with it. Well, and so, and so, going back to the star, when the star explodes, mm-hmm. is is that actually is it true, Tim, that that's when it begins to really emit its light? Uh, no, I wouldn't put it that way. What I would put it, the way I would put it is that the death of the star is the basis for life. Mm. Without, without that star dying, without a process by which a star dies, there could be no life, period. I mean, in, in, in it, it's not flowery uh, or allegorical, it's factual. The, the dying of a star gave birth to the component elements in the periodic table, the elements that eventually formed into complex proteins, amino acids, and other uh, organic compounds that eventually somehow uh, became alive, which is, you know, to this day, it is still the thing that uh, humans want to understand, and it informs our mythology, our religions, our stories. It's a big deal to understand this mystery. But uh, this, this, the dying of the star is a necessary precursor to life. And, you know, if you think about it, it that's not even um, that's not even just, re- you know, that, that's not like it's a thing that's that stars uh, or, or it's not a responsibility that stars hold alone. Uh, death does seem to be a necessary precursor to life because there's a whole lot that goes on between a dying star and life forming on a planet, the third planet from this little star that we're living around. So there are a lot of processes that went into that. But the point is that uh, that cycle uh, clearly um, is a virtuous one. 
When we think about that in nature here on this planet, and there's a saying that I've always really kind of grounded myself back into when I think about growth, I think about the pain of growth. And I was the kind of gal who, when I was in elementary and junior high school, I grew so fast that by the time I was 12, I was 5'7", with a size 10 shoe. <laughs> oh man, that had to be and, hard. And serious growing pains, Tim. It hurt. Yeah. It really hurt. And and this, this um, saying is, you know, for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. And the shell cracks open, and its insides come out, and everything changes. And to someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. And doesn't it seem to suggest something about the necessity of vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah. It sure does to me. That seed uh, is safe inside that husk. And the only way that it can become, literally become, is to be exposed and vulnerable. If we look at the butterfly, the same thing, right? The caterpillar crawling into the chrysalis. Mm Mm-hmm. emitting the digestive enzymes to literally break itself down and become goo. What a vulnerable place to be in. Exactly. And yet out of it comes another being. It literally disappears as its current self and rebuilds into a different thing. I'm finding myself curious how this, uh, how you see this playing out in feminine roles or archetypes and in narratives, maybe some of the illusions in how we're holding or maybe how we're avoiding patterns in our lives? Yeah, that's a big question. Illusions and stories, patterns, all of these things are part of the human experience. Um, nobody tells you that it's going to be a thing that's there, but um, it is to me, the work of a human lifetime to learn to see, to learn to see not just yourself, because as we've talked about before, there are there's a certain amount of self-study that can be done that just the act of looking um, yields benefits uh, uh, to becoming uh, a more authentic human being. I believe that, uh, and, and I speak... Uh, very clearly from the point of view that I I really can't claim to know the experience of being a a woman at all. I I can, I can understand certain aspects of it, but my, my regular experience has not informed me about any of this because I've never experienced really any of the things that most women will experience on a regular basis in their lives. So, but when I think about um, what we were talking about, uh, there are definitely stories that women come into the world with. You were talking about Cinderella earlier, and boy, is that what a what an amazingly terrible accident! You know, somebody said, "Hey, let's make this story." You know, somebody at Disney, let's make this story, and, and I don't think it started with Disney. Of course, these these ideas have been around for much longer than Disney. But the idea that the woman becomes herself or becomes total or becomes complete when this man bestows the, the, the missing part to her. Now, that's not in itself terrible. 
I mean, if you think about yin and yang, if you thought about it metaphorically or allegorically, sure, I can understand that um, there is a notion of bringing together two disparate parts to make a better whole. I can see that. But I don't like the idea that has been suggested in stories like that, that women necessarily need help. No, and no more so than a man needs help being alive. I just think that it, that's a, it's a false dichotomy. If you're a human being, eventually you realize that um, being vulnerable and depending upon others is virtuous. It's a good thing. But in this case, it's sort of mandated uh, in stories like Cinderella, I think. Almost like she's been stripped of choice. Exactly. You cannot become by yourself. Right. I mean, that's the simple act, uh, the simple summation of the story. You cannot become yourself by yourself. And uh, and it doesn't, you know, it's it, it starts with seeing it. But then that story keeps getting propagated. It's almost like um, Daniel Quinn's uh, song of mother culture that he talked about in Ishmael. It's a it's a song that everybody knows the lyrics to, but will never be able to actually tell you that they know it exists because it is so. Um, shot through every aspect of the culture that uh, you you really can't really say that you're conscious of it. And I believe that, um, albeit to a lesser degree, we're talking about a similar thing here, that this is shot through the culture and it's shot through for thousands of years that this has been the story. I mean, how can it ever be that a man can possess a woman and sell her? And yet that's still a thing <laughs> if you go to the a wrong very place. Real, a very real thing still today. Yeah. And to me, it's if it wasn't so terrible, it would be laughable. How could anybody make such a fundamental error in judgment to assume that's true? But, you know, we've got thousands of years of this kind of, this kind of conflict with the feminine, with the mystery. Well, and now, you know, the archetype of like kind of what you're describing here is like the damsel in distress, mm-hmm. you know, needs to be rescued. Come save me. Yes. And, you know, that's, that's one side of a coin. The other side of the coin is that the woman is dangerous and powerful mm-hmm. and we have to contain her. That well, is- they're, in, they're in the garden, the Garden of Eden, where, where the darkness of Eve was what brought, you know, the destruction of it all in yeah. a sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Temptation and all that stuff. I mean, it all sounds, you know, flowery and, uh, you know, allegorical, all of these stories that have been handed down through history. But in the end, it's really just about, you know, simple things. You know, it's men and women living together on a planet for, you know, at least as modern humans for hundreds of thousands of years. And that whole thing playing out, all of that. And so the interesting question is, well, what wouldn't that have been an interesting universe if uh, if if the world had been flipped on its head and the powerful gender was the women and the men had the <laughs> had the masculine version of that story that they needed to be taken care of and cared for? <laughs> Imagine that. I think in some ways, Tim, from where I'm sitting. That is actually, in some ways, what needs to happen. I think we're walking around with not just men, but women as well, leaders that are so undernourished, you know, emotionally, right? Living in emotional poverty. And 
and they are they have so many unmet needs and they don't even know it necessarily right and because of that whether they're they're living in their pain body and yeah. they're acting out and making decisions about finances about um world huge world decisions based on fear based on pain that's been unprocessed from traumas or scar tissue build up over time you know and the different aspects of themselves and how that's now playing out in their life and so i do think that there's this this um part of what's happening for men is this deep under nourishment and emotional poverty i couldn't agree more um now, in my circles, um, I, I don't spend much time, or let me put it this way, in my circles, uh, the men that are in my universe are relatively vulnerable and open and able to communicate on that level. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't make me think that uh, most men are that way. I just think that's, that's sort of what uh, I've attracted. And uh, I just don't seem to have... Uh, sort of uh, too many of the really broken men, but it is it is interesting because you know men do have that that similar problem, and in many ways uh, that is their challenge: is how can I be vulnerable and strong? And it, it seems like a, a reasonable question, but it's actually in my mind it's it's a false question because vulnerability is not weakness; vulnerability yeah. is strength, and. Um, I've I've run into many 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 people who don't seem to to get that that you know that is the path to courage and strength is to be vulnerable even if you're f- uh, fearful of the consequences of it because there really is no other way that I can think of uh, to grow and to be. Well, it's part of I I see that vulnerability like you were talking about earlier, right? With the breaking open of the star, breaking open of the seed, it, that's that's where the growth lives, right? That's where the expansion happens. It sure seems to be absolutely true in the case of humanity. Yeah. That uh, you don't grow um, without going through and into the vulnerability and um, really understanding uh, what you know and what you don't know. And uh, and you mentioned, you know, unmet needs. There is so much. To me, I think that that there's a crisis right now. That, that there is not a mechanism in our society or our culture that even points to the need f- for self-knowledge on the level of needs. To even consider needs a thing that are real. Uh, I, I've run into many, many men who will say, I don't need to worry about that stuff. And it's, it's sad because every human being has them. That if you're alive, you have them. And being able to articulate them and communicate them is probably one of the greatest strengths possible. And, uh, you know, when we go back to the damsel story, you know, uh, women are not encouraged to do that either. They're not encouraged to know themselves on the level of their needs or even what they're feeling, for goodness sake. Uh, There's a whole lot of um, smash that stuff down mindset. Especially uh, if you are going to try and, uh, you know, work in or, or operate in an economy, whether running a business or being a part of a business, being an entrepreneur, uh, it seems like uh, that it, it like that that's a, an unacceptable trade-off. 
that you can't succeed with one or you can't succeed with both, both being vulnerable and being successful and being a leader and all those things, which again, I think is, it's just dead wrong. Um, to me, the best leaders that I've ever encountered are the ones that are humble and aware of their shortcomings and understand how to surround themselves with people who protect them from uh, their weak areas. You know, I, uh, I really came to know that we can hold multiple kind of emotions at the same time. And uh, I'll give an example for a story. You know, my mother, uh, when I was eight, was in a really bad car accident that left her disabled. Um, and she kind of emotionally checked out at that point. Um, and my father had already gone, so he was already out of the picture. So I felt kind of alone in the world, Tim, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with my brother, and I was the oldest. And uh, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, I've been doing processing for years around this stuff, you know, parent stuff, because it's important to take a look. Mm-hmm. It's important to examine herself. And there are so many different layers and nuances to it all, kind of like the soil of the earth. Like there are just different layers and it takes getting through that topsoil to get down to those boulders deep, deep below. Um, and so I was, I've been, I've been unpacking and unpacking and unpacking. And, uh, I had this experience where I got onto a call with my mom and I was just feeling, it. I was feeling the anger that, you know, I, I didn't have some of the, the support or tools or resources that I, I really needed that I really craved and yearned for, you know, growing up and that they just weren't there. She just wasn't capable. She didn't have the capacity, you know? And, and yet I, at the same time could hold her with such compassion and love. So I called her up and I said, Hey mom, I need to have a conversation with you because I'm really angry. And, and so as a, but, but I need you to really hear me. I need, I just need to be heard in this. Can you just please listen to me right now? And it's okay because I love you. Um, you know, I'm going, I, it's not, our relationship's not changing. I just need to be angry with you for a moment. And I know that you did the best that you could. And I just had this big conversation with her about it. And I, and I held her in all this compassion and all this love for what she was capable of and her own, you know, traumas and what she had been through. And yet I was still allowed to have my anger and process that with her. It was the, it was one of the most beautiful conversations of my life, Tim. <laughs> Because I, I was able to be angry with mom in a container where it was safe, to be angry with her, where she didn't have to take it personally, because I was also equally, if not more, holding her with compassion. Yeah, anger without resentment, right? Right. Now that took some practice and some time to get there. Well, but. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it is very hard. I mean, um, it's hard enough to unpack what's the what are the true emotions underneath the anger, you know, grief, sadness, fear, and so on. That's and uh, so they are; uh, those are hard things to earn in a human life. Is the visibility of how to do those things, how to express uh, dissatisfaction without in, without the intent to injure. Yes, yeah, and just have it like really have the the what's true for us, and without making anyone or anything wrong, but just having it. Yeah, that's what Rosenberg talks about, right? That's right. Or Rumi, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that painting. I love that one. Yeah, me too. 
Yeah. And, and so therefore looking becomes important. Self-examination becomes important. But as we were talking about earlier, it's not, it's, it, it, looking is not enough. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, there's a, uh, there's a certain amount that can be revealed just by looking, you know, you turn on a light, you can see things in the room, but you can't see what's in the walls. And, uh, no matter what you do, you got to cut open the walls, uh, to see certain things. So there, there are certainly hidden areas, uh, in the human psyche that don't want to be seen and will evade detection. And, and you have to learn to, um, look at them, learn, learn, learn how to see things that, uh, that don't wish to be detected. And, uh, you know, that's like phase two, once you've gotten past the basics, uh, learning how to find the parts of yourself that you can't see. Yeah. Because our ego becomes very sophisticated at hiding. Sure. Um, biases, prejudices, uh, all these things are just lurking around in there and, just like uh, the song of mother culture, they are so prevalent and so part of your way of being that you don't really see them. You'd, you'd almost be forgiven to, to think that this is how things are. But the truth is that, you know, you may not find someone who actually shares those that particular cocktail of prejudices, preconceived notions and things like that. It always amazes me to to realize how each human being literally lives in their own universe. Mm. We really do. Uh, from the point of view of our experience, if you think of everything that we, I mean, take away the, the basic things we can agree on. We can probably agree when we look at the sky that it's blue. Um, some people may describe it with more precision or sophistication, but we can generally agree on things like colors. We can agree on things like soft and hard. But there's a great deal that we can agree on. Even if we try and tell each other, we still can't agree on them. Even how, how something tastes, you can only kind of point uh, to, uh, to things. And that's just on the basics. If you now get into sort of the things that involve attitude and opinion. Uh, it's literally, a, you know, you, you're not walking around in the same world with the person right next to you. Or the or genes. Our genes, like one person loves cilantro, the next person, because of the gene that they have, you know, tastes like soap. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you may not even find out that a person doesn't eat cilantro because to them it doesn't taste like cilantro. If you could even tell somebody what cilantro tastes like. Um, yes, uh, it, there are genetic parts of it, but to me, the, um, the, the stuff that is really um, impactful and influential is the stories and the illusions that we build up over time. Um, everything from misunderstanding uh, a person's behavior uh, to, I mean, just think of all the ways that we misunderstand or misdetect the world that we're in from simple things like Ooh, someone says something and you wonder why did they say it that way and then you build a story around that unless you ask them you may never know why they spoke the way they did and that's just a tiny level of it but the point is that we are all sort of in our own universes um, we all have our own stories and some of those stories and illusions box us in they, we tell ourselves this is I mean, to, to me, the uh, one of the most destructive phrases is, this is who I am. Because mm. I don't believe there is such a thing as me. 
I mean, I, I certainly go around in a society and I function uh, un- under this uh, this identity called Tim, but uh, that that was all kind of built up and invented. So uh, that whole idea behind that is, you know, one of the it's one of the things that causes us the most trouble in our lives is listening to that voice in our head tell us that we can't do something or have to do something. Have to is a pretty bad word. Have to requires us to surrender our autonomy, and we do it frequently. In our inner critic. Yeah, our inner critic. Yeah, can wreak havoc all over. And, you know, the inner critic in men and the inner critic in women are different, but they're equally strong. And for... um, for a gender that has been told things uh, like this is what girls do, um, there is that whole piece in there. This is what girls do. This is what girls and do, and this is what girls don't do. That's right. And that's what I love about the three women in science that you referred to earlier as we were talking. They, they, they chose not to live by those stories, those narratives. Yeah, we uh, either they rejected those narratives or they never had them. It's possible. It's possible that they just literally uh, just smashed through things gleefully saying, I'm going to go do this. And they just had the, the framework early enough in life that nobody said no. But that leads to a, a, that's, that's a positive and hopeful thing, right? Because if it's possible for that to happen, that means that uh, uh, most of these barriers are illusions. That's not to say that there are not real barriers. What I'm saying is that um, believing in the barriers is one of the strongest aspects of the barriers. Is believing. I love it. Keep going. So uh, I, I believe that the way past those is to just cultivate not a certainty that you can uh, go against the barrier, but just sort of a um, sort of game for the mystery. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens if I go try and do this. No harm, no foul. I'm going to go try and do this. Don't build a story in it, the associated denying force that says, I can't do that. Sure you can. You can really do almost anything. It's sort of like the, you know that, that, that old thing my mother told me that you can ask for anything. You can ask for literally anything in the world. Uh, the only thing that will stop you for asking is some story you have in you about being ashamed of asking for anything you want. But if you can throw that away and make that a virtuous thing, asking for help, uh, whether you're in business or whether you're around money and you're trying to have some uh, some adjustment or some uh, refinement in your attitudes toward it, ask for help. Don't assume that the person that you see being successful about the thing did it themselves. They almost certainly had someone that mentored them or helped them get past a blind spot or a supposed barrier, right? I couldn't agree more. And I also think this really hits on the power of language in words and the energy in those in that language in words and the importance of what we are communicating to ourselves and to others. Yeah. 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 To you know, me, that's, I'm, I'm like, I'm like with you, you know, I, I grew up with a mother who, who told me I could do anything I put my mind to. Now, I don't know that I would perpetuate saying it exactly like that, 
But I grew up believing I could do anything I put my mind to because I heard it over and over and over again. Think how powerful those few words are, though, mm-hmm. in a young mind especially. I mean, think of the state of the mind of a child. The child looks at the parents as gods, and God speaks to them. And God either says, you can't do that or you can do anything. You can imagine how important that is. We forgot how important it was because we forgot what it was like to be that size. We forgot what it was like to have a world that enclosed us and a few other people. And that was our universe. We forgot that simple world. And we, we forgot the total trust that we placed in people. And so when you hear someone like your parents say these kinds of things, there's power there. Mm-hmm. It sticks. I still hear it. Yeah. And it carries you across, you know, choppy seas. It, 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 it supports you. I think it's the foundation of the, tenos- the tenacity that I have. You know, it, 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 it's that belief that, okay, well, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of how. Exactly. Which is the foundation of ultimately what my mother was saying to me. Yeah. You can do anything for your mind too. Okay, well, hmm. so maybe that's not the way, but there's another way. Yeah. And then it becomes an experimentation science lab rather than a failure. Exactly. It's a mystery to solve. It's a, it's a puzzle to unpack. And that becomes fun. Then it's a place of wonder and awe. Think of that energy that's, that's, that's involved in working on a puzzle. It's not... Uh, negative energy. It's positive. It's enthusiasm. It's excitement. And all of that translates into the energy that's needed to solve it. Because ultimately, you have to have your own energy. It's not going to come from elsewhere. So if we're not living in that place of possibility, then we're living in, you mentioned it earlier, kind of living in this box, living in this container. And one of the things I really enjoy listening to you talk about is how how much like our inner world, our brain, looks so much like the galaxy. Yeah, that is a fascinating area of research, I think, that's going on. One of the things that I am always excited about is, you know, if you go to any time in the past, you go back 50 years, you go back 100 years, you will find something that was not known then that is known now. And by known, um, I, I, I want to speak precisely that uh, the, the job of science is not to prove things. The job of science is to converge on truth with ever-increasing certainty. But certainty is never guaranteed. So we can, always, uh, we can always approach certainty. But there's always going to be a time where something wasn't known. In other words, there was always a day where we didn't know a thing, and then the next day it was now known. And I always visualize that as sort of an expanding bubble, like a sphere. Inside the sphere is all of human knowledge, which to me, science's job is just to take these individual realizations of individuals and put it into this larger brain that is the sum of all of the brain's alive or dead, that have wondered about things. So the cultural brain is continually growing, you know, from the the efforts of individuals or groups of people that are trying to understand things. You know, there was a day where infrared was considered something spooky like witchcraft, or it didn't even have a name yet, but it was, it, it, it belonged in the domain of 
of mystery and scary stuff. And we all know what happened to witches. They were not celebrated. So um, being able to manipulate or wield power, especially occult power, got you in various kinds of trouble. Uh, And also, uh, you can see in history that uh, we treated the men and the women differently in the same regard. Men were wizards, but women were witches. So I, I like thinking about how that sphere of understanding and knowledge continually grows and how, looking at it from the other side, things that we don't understand today, in 100 years, they will look back on us with pity and say, how could they not have understood that? The point is it's constantly moving. That sphere is constantly moving. And so uh, we are at a time now where our technology and our understanding in our time is grappling with its own sort of mysteries. And one of those interesting mysteries is uh, we can at least now scientifically observe things that were talked about for thousands of years. Uh, If you Go back and look at mystical teachers, conscious people, Buddha or others like him. Uh, You will find, uh, speaking about things that were not scientifically testable, but we are now starting to run into this area where our technology can allow us to not only look very closely at the human brain, but also look very closely at the universe to to look at it with enough sophistication that we can start to see structure that, you know, even 50 years ago, there's just no way to look at these things. There was no way to even visualize what a neuron looked like in a human brain. There was no technology sophisticated enough to do that. All all these things arise from men and women saying, I wonder what that looks like. And then they figure out how to do it. Somebody comes along and invents a, a new piece of technology, and boom, suddenly you can look at neurons at, at a magnification level that was impossible 20 to 30 years ago. So the thing that is amazing and particularly interesting to me, because you know my main area of interest is not science. My main area of interest is uh, psychology and mysticism, uh, esotericism, and so on. Those things are you know, I'm more interested in the spiritual lives of human beings. And so we're now at a point where we can look at the human brain and we can compare it to very large sections of the universe, of space, and we see structures of similar levels of complexity. Now, that's important. Uh, complexity is, is a thing. Um, it is a, uh, it's a quantifiable thing. You can measure the amount of complexity in in a system through various means. And so there are people that are, because again, we live in the age where the technology is possible to do this now, we can kind of compare the very small to the very large. Uh, Now, the human brain, just to give context, the human brain is 27 orders of magnitude smaller than the, the, you know, large sections of the universe. So by that, I mean... You take the human neuron and multiply it times 10, 27 times, or add, a, add 27 zeros to the dimensions of at the scale of a neuron, and you get to large sections of our universe. And the interesting thing is that when you compare these things, they are very similar, not just in appearance, but they are similar when they are analyzed 
quantitatively for their level of complexity. And to me, that is really exciting because when I think of, you know, when I put on my spiritual hat and you, and you think about you know, what is consciousness and why is it in us and where is it located? Is it located anywhere in us? Is there a spot? Is it in our head? No. Uh, is, it, is it in our whole body? The question isn't really known. But when I look at that, it seems like what the spiritual masters and the mystics have been saying are starting to become uh, you know, researchable things. And I always love that fact because you, know, you can have the world of the mystics and you can have the world of the spiritualists and you can have the world of the scientists. And scientists are continually you know, moving into the territory that was sort of unprovable. Right, it was it. It remained in the world of the occult or the world of the spiritual, and so on. So, if you think about consciousness that's in each of us, and then you look at the human brain and the universe, seem to have similar complexity, obviously different structures. Well, to our to our way of seeing, they look like they are different functions, but that may not even be real. But if you if you try and answer the question, where is this consciousness that's animating me and animating you? Where is it? Well, the answer that seems to be coming increasingly more accurate is that it's everywhere. Mm. And if it's everywhere, well, what does that have to say about this similarity and complexity between the human brain and the universe? Maybe the fact that the universe has so much similarity uh, to this matrix of thinking and cognition that's up in our skulls maybe it's because that you that that consciousness really is everywhere maybe consciousness is everywhere in space everywhere in the universe at all times and in living beings it's in them as well and maybe that is the area of of ongoing research uh, for us to understand what is the nature of this fact if this ends up to be true well, first of all, it would, it would confirm what a lot of mystics and spiritual masters have said all along about consciousness. It is the formlessness. It, it cannot be pointed at. It has no qualities. You cannot describe it. And yet that's who you are. Well, maybe this finding this commonality between such vastly different structures in terms of scale and time have such uh, so much in common. Maybe that is where our future understanding goes our, in our spiritual lives, understanding the nature of what consciousness is. Because I think, uh, again, you talk about illusions and you talk about stories. And uh, one thing we try and do all along is try and make a story to explain something, right? Scientists do it as much as spiritual people do. And we try and describe consciousness, well, if you talk to a spiritual master, they will just keep politely interrupting you and saying, it has no structure, it has no characteristics. Anytime you try and give it a characteristic, you have falsified it, you're turning it into an object, you're turning into a thing that you can observe. Consciousness has no properties. It is the emptiness. It is the unformed. And so it may very well be that just consciousness is a property of our universe, and that's why we're able to have this conversation today, because the universe that came into being and eventually produced stars, then galaxies, then solar systems, and had a lot of stellar death along the way, eventually produced conscious living beings 
made up out of all of this organic material. And now here we are able to look upon the universe and see the consciousness that, that we're using to observe it. I like this concept, Tim, of the understanding um, the nature of consciousness. And there's a few things that come up in listening to this. One is, well, yeah, understanding the nature of consciousness. And then I'm seeing the tentacles of, you know, how our brain, what our brain looks like and what the galaxy looks like and, and then what tree and root systems look like and the similarities and how um, it is our bodies or, uh, you know, the, the root systems themselves or the branches, you know, which is the opposite side of it, just kind of one's in the light and one's in the dark. And that is the antennas of sorts, of being able to receive the receptors, of being able to actually receive the consciousness. And then maybe how important that becomes for our own awareness, again, of of self-examination, so that we can clear the muck, clear the scar tissue out of the way of our ability to be the receptors of this consciousness, this nature of consciousness. And that what I'm hearing, what I'm really feeling as I'm listening to you talk about this, is this concept that everything is found in nothing. Boy, you couldn't have put it better than that. Everything comes from nothing. Everything Everything. comes from formlessness and returns to it. Mm. And then I think about that movie. Did you ever see The NeverEnding Story? Yeah. Yeah. It brings, I had this visual at the end of that movie where the, you know, the, what was that? What was that being? The flying white <laughs> dragon-like being, uh, you know, and, it, and it's this, it, there, it's like everything is possible in the place of nothingness. And, and in this, this space of quietness and stillness, that crystalline field that's that's what we want to tap into, and yet we're we, we're so busy, we're so blocked, we're so trying to be something that we think we're supposed to be, because we forgot that actually all we really need to do is just be. Yeah, um, to me, it, it's funny how many conversations I have it when I uh, eventually if it turns to the question of the ego because really the problems we're talking about uh, the problems that we're talking about here are really on the domain or at the level of uh, of the ego you know on the scale of the ego for lack of a better term um, at, there are no problems when you're uh, when you are in the body but you are living from the consciousness that's in you. In other words, when you are not operating from the ego, the ego is this process. I'm not sure if you've uh, read Eckhart Tolle, but um, he did talk about the pain body and uh, his book, A New Earth. I, I, I always recommend to anybody who wants to have, um, wants to dip their toes into understanding ego and consciousness. I think he did it better than anybody on explaining it in a way that uh, that you can use it and and make sense of it the I, I, everything that we're talking about here in terms of the problems with either managing money or the problems with managing anything they all come to these illusions and stories that comprise the ego 
the ego is the one walking around inside you and it's the one that's comparing you to others and either finding you wanting or superior it's constantly doing this and it's it's exhausting and for anybody who gets really tired of being exhausted by that i think that's when they start trying to really go in and understand this and understand uh, the notion of the ego and what's going on there and understanding that it's not you i'll tell you that is probably the most scary news you can give to anybody to tell them that they are not their ego because then they have to say well if i'm not tim what am i and the answer is great question <laughs> Great question. Let's talk about that. And then you just walk them through. I I, I've, I I remember doing this with this fellow that I ran with. I used to, uh, before the pandemic, I used to go over every Saturday to uh, Lucadia and do a an eight-mile run with a group of people over there. And this young man uh, was... He was struggling. He was, you know, he was in a uh, just out of college. Had his master's degree. He was in research in genetics, and he was running through problems with people, you know, political problems, uh, you know, all ego stuff. And so I remember that day very clearly, just running with him and kind of walking him through the pointing out instructions. Uh, the pointing out instructions is a pretty familiar or a popular technique for showing what is you and what is not you. Or in other words, better way to put that is the pointing out instructions help you to to separate subject from object. In other words, what is an object in the universe? So you start and you point at a cloud and say, do you see that cloud? Yes, I see this cloud. Um, Is that cloud you or is that cloud separate from you? Is that an object or is it you? Well, it's an object, obviously. Okay, what about that stone we just ran past? Is that an object or is that you? It's an object. Okay. So, and I take them down until I until they get to the point where I say, okay, look inside yourself. Do you see any thoughts in there? If you do, name it. Tell me what it's doing. What's going on? I'm thinking about X. Okay. You're able to observe it. So, do you understand that that is an object also? Yes. Okay. Or... Sometimes, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and, you know, the truth is that if you can observe it, it's an object in your consciousness. That is all there is to it. If you can observe it, it's an object in your consciousness. So you keep doing this until you find the thing that you cannot point at. That's you. That's your consciousness. And even the moment you call it your consciousness, you've just made it an object. <laughs> so you got to you got to stop and realize that when you get to the consciousness, when you get past all of the objects in your field of experience, all of your feelings, all of your thoughts, all of your attitudes, all of your physical sensations and the world that's outside, they are all objects in, in your consciousness. And there's only one thing that is not an object in this universe, in its consciousness. And it's, it is in you, even though you cannot point at it. So it's the simple answer is uh, the only thing that's left is the thing you can't point at. That's consciousness. It's the only thing that's not an object. And Tolle has a really great narrative about that in his book. I always like to point people to that because it, it is one of the most concise ways of sort of ripping off uh, the Band-Aid that people are walking around uh, that's affixed to their being 
They say, I've got to, I've got to have this thing. This is me. I can't be without it. But of course you can. And it's not like uh, if you uh, fully realize yourself, you lose your ego. You don't. You just stop believing it's you. It's still there. You still laugh at movies. You still like certain kinds of jokes. You just don't believe it's you. That feels like a, a really incredible tie-in to where we're headed this season. Yeah. And what we're making these different narratives mean and how we are defining ourselves with them or how we are behaving because of them or what we're feeling or what we're thinking and how we're how that's all expressing through us because we've identified outside of the consciousness right the personality the ego and how that really can very much shift if we begin to let go of these narratives of these stories and begin to experience that consciousness that you're speaking of Yes. And what is fascinating about all this is you have to maintain uh, a couple of ideas when you're trying to go down these rabbit holes. You got to keep scale and relativity in mind. And I would I would uh, describe scale as, okay, well, yes, the idea is to come to see that your ego is not you. It's, 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 uh, part of the process to I uh, to learn to see what is you and what is functions. In other words, your ego it would be better seen as as an autonomic function like your heartbeat or your breathing. You don't breathe; your body breathes for you. Your heart beats for you. And the first leap is, I don't think the thinker thinks. And then I see these thoughts come through and I slap eye on them and I call them my thoughts. But they came from nowhere. They came out of this emptiness, this formlessness, and then they disappear back into it if you don't give them any attention. So it's possible to actually live that way. It's not really about stopping your thoughts. It's more about you know, stopping being so obsessed with them that you that you have to constantly grab onto them as they come through. Yes. But what I was yeah. getting at about scale is on one level, yes, on, on one level of scale, yes, you have to learn to see the illusion of self. But on, on the level of, of an emotional human being, it's not like you just go off and say, I'm just going to deny the ego and I'll be okay. You still have to attend to your emotional life. You have to attend to on the level of your psyche you have to attend to those things. Part of what makes um, the uh, the pursuit of recognizing this illusion possible is that you become more whole. Um, integral would be another way of putting it. That you 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 have to work on all of these scales together. You uh, you can't just, for example, start meditating twenty hours a day and quit your job. I mean, you could. But eventually, you'll be meditating out on the curb, um, and uh, and you'll be walking everywhere. Now, maybe that's what you're after. But if you have other ideas in mind, then you have to entertain sort of a holistic approach uh, to uh, to wellness. And so, yes, you absolutely must uh, inspect all of those illusions and all of those stories that that form your little dossier that you that is your ego. You also have to. Work within the ego and make it healthier. Make it so that uh, yet that you are not walking around believing things that are not real. Um, and you know, att- addressing those illusions. 
you st- you still have to live in the world. And I think the way Tolle talked about it is there's sort of an internal um, purpose, there's an external purpose. And your external purpose may be to go and start a business and uh, and get wealthy. That may be your external purpose, but your internal purpose is to recognize the illusion of self and live from the consciousness, which would uh, you, uh, you could sort of categorize that as observation without evaluation. You can always react to the world and react to things, but the point of all this is to be able to sometimes observe without without judging the, uh, what it is that you observed as either good or bad or as right or wrong. You can just observe without having to uh, you know render a judgment. For th- those people in, in the audience who are interested in this material, uh, the 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 error is to think I'm just going to go work in this one area. Uh, you'll eventually realize after working long enough that uh, it probably won't work to work here and then work there and then work there and then work there. Um, no more so than, yes, you should work on uh, on awareness of your feelings and needs and work on your ability to communicate that in ways that protect the other people and, uh, and keep their uh, interests and needs at the same level as yours. But uh, you might want to actually um, walk a little bit, you know, take care of your physical body. You have a physical machine that needs to be cared for also, depending upon how, how you feed it and what kinds of activities you do. Um, you can also take care of that. But you could also be one of those people who runs, you know, 90 miles a week and, and their whole lives are running, uh, but they don't inspect anything else. So... Uh, my thinking is that the holistic approach, having an idea of what are the areas that you need to attend to while you're a human being, a biological machine walking around on the planet, figure out what those things are, learn what those things are, and then you know figure out how to work on, uh, on all of them. And that may sound daunting, but it doesn't have to be daunting. It can just be, you know, keeping an awareness of all those different scales or dimensions of existence that you need to attend to. Beautiful, Tim. You've given us a lot to think about here and to kind of chew on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's beautiful. It, it feels so um, rich and juicy and like there's just so much in that. Um, so much love I can feel in that. So, Thank you for the wisdom that you've shared. You're most welcome. It's my pleasure. A big thank you to Tim Lewis. And I want to make sure to thank my co-producer, Tyler Lowe, and the entire Living Wealthy Institute team. The magic of the show is simply not possible without them. And to you, my listener, thank you. And I wish you a blessed week. And make sure to join us for the next three-part mini-series as I unpack the Cinderella story. You know, we all have a Cinderella playing out inside of us. My position on this story is that it is not a simple archetypical story. It's not just a fairy tale. It's a story of disempowerment and a personal financial nightmare. Thank you for listening to The Nature of Money, a show of the Living Wealthy Institute. I'm your host, Jennifer Love. Thank you for joining me. Inspired by what you heard? challenged? 
This is sobering and confronting material. I know. I've done it. And I continue to do it. And I work with leaders around the world in doing this work. It's a big step to even get to the place where you're willing to look and examine your core beliefs and the ways that you could be sabotaging yourself and say, yeah, that could be happening in me. Exploring this on your own is not easy. If you'd like support with identifying how your harmful narratives are blocking you from feeling worthy, valuable, whole, and freeing yourself and in your relationship with money, please book a discovery session with us. You can book that by going to jenniferlove.com and filling out a short and easy discovery form that helps me and the team prepare so we can show up and explore how to best support you. You can also join our free Living Wealthy Community Facebook group where I share financial resources, living wealthy tips, and weekly money inspirations. You can find that at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash living wealthy. And will you take just a moment right now and give this show a stellar rating on the channel you are tuning into and then share this episode with someone who could really benefit from its magic. I deeply appreciate you. And thank you to my co-producer, Tyler Lowe, to my writing shepherd, Tina Overberry, and to the musical magic and all-around soul support of my sweetheart, John Bagdasarian, and to the entire Living Wealthy team. The manifestation of this project is simply not possible without them. And to you, my listener, thank you. And I wish you a blessed week.